Hey there, glad you're joining me for the third supplemental lecture of the semester. This one covers mostly our perceptions as well as some fairness principles within communication, but mainly we're going to be talking about perception after talking about self-image and things like self-esteem and the looking glass self during the course of the in-class lecture. Now, if you're checking this out, listening to it, viewing it, whatever it might be, before Tuesday's class, which would be January 30th's class, just know that there is a quiz in class on January 30th. So if you're checking it out the Sunday or Monday beforehand, just know that there is a quiz in class on January 30th. Hopefully you already know that. You've checked out the study guide that's online. But that's what we're talking about this week as well as Chapter 3. There's no out-of-class assignments due this week. So February 4th, which is a Sunday, usually some out-of-class assignments are due via D2L that day. This particular Sunday, nothing is due. The only assignment overall for the course this week is really just that quiz number one that's in class on Tuesday and worth 40 points. Next week, we'll discuss chapter four. We'll have topic check number three at this point. You are probably well acclimated to the topic checks. And we'll have our first reflection essay of the semester that is due February 11th, and we'll discuss that as we break into next week's lecture and supplemental lecture. But for right now, all I want to focus on is self-understanding and perception. So we talked about things like self-esteem and self-image during class, or we will if you're listening to this before class, but self-understanding is important because realistically, a lot of this chapter has to do with perception. The chapter's name is about audience, but realistically, in order to know an audience, we have to understand ourselves and we have to understand others' perspective and perception of ourselves. Understanding ourselves starts with awareness, which is defined as the ability to be conscious of events and stimuli. So our perception of ourselves shapes our awareness, but also our self-perception and our awareness shapes our response to events around us and it shapes our response to stimuli. This is really important when we're talking about the concept of audience because based on how we feel others see us, based on how we want to come across to others, we're going to respond to these events, these things going on around us somewhat differently. And this has its roots in perception. So the book goes into detail on the three steps of the perception process. And we'll talk about each one of these as we go through today. The three steps of the process are selecting or sometimes called attending. We're going to refer to it as attending for the purpose of this class. There's organizing and there's interpreting. But what I want you to know beyond just the three steps in this process is that the process of perception looks different for everyone. Why is this? Well, we all have different life experiences, as we've talked about in class to this point. Our self-concepts are different. The culture that we're coming from is different, whether that's our familial culture, whether that's our culture writ large, and also contexts are different. We've talked about context quite a bit to this point in this semester. Context matters. So if you're at work, if you're outside of work, if you're in one organization or another organization, the process of perception is going to look different for everyone. And I'll give you an example. An emergency room nurse is likely to be somewhat hardened off to routinely occurring 
emergencies. That's the name of the department, emergency room. But if you work in another segment of the hospital, let's say you work as a family practice nurse, you might not be as familiar with emergencies. And so an emergency within the emergency room, contextually, that's understood, that's expected. An emergency within a family practice might not be. And so we're going to look at that. We're going to perceive it a little bit differently. We're going to pay attention to it a little bit differently. So it's important to understand for us that differences in perception may occur. And when other people don't perceive things the way that we do, it's important to be empathetic to that and just acknowledge the fact that they might be coming from a different spot or a different place. Now, this can be a difficult time in an organization if you have two people from maybe a different culture or different previous job. Two people might look at things different ways. Ultimately, that type of diversity is a positive in the workplace. And again, we're talking about diversity in terms of life experience, not in terms of demographic diversity here. Ultimately, that type of thing can be good for a workplace, but it can cause some friction going forward. So that is one thing I want you to remember about the perception process. Now, let's break it down into those three areas. We begin with attending. Attending is the act of focusing on specific objects or stimuli in the world around you. So it's basically, what do we focus on? This is where the term attention comes from. Do I have your attention, etc.? So we have selective perception. We have to as humans. If we're aware of everything going on around us at all times, we'd go crazy. We'd go absolutely crazy. And so we have to make certain assumptions. We'll talk about those a little bit later on. But we also have to make conscious decisions about what we decide to attend to. For example, there's a little gnat floating around off to the right-hand side. And up until now, I haven't really been paying attention to it. It's just part of my surroundings. But I'm choosing to pay attention to it now because it's getting slightly annoying. So what are some things that we choose to attend to? Well, annoying things certainly would count. Anything that's extreme intense, exceptional, or extraordinary will choose to attend to. And this is where I kind of talk about the difference between maybe an ER nurse and a nurse in a family practice, where in an emergency room, things might not be extreme and intense because things are always extreme and intense. It's always expected versus in a family practice, an emergency might not be expected. And so extra attention is paid to that which is extreme or intense. But we do this too, Outside of the workplace, if there is a loud noise that we weren't expecting, if a transformer blows in our neighborhood, let's say, we're going to pay attention to that. That's going to pique our interest. We're going to wonder what's going on. It has our attention. Also, things that are different, unusual, or contradictory. An example of this is a changed traffic pattern when you're driving. If you've driven on Academy in Colorado Springs lately, well, really in the last like six years, you know that construction seems to be forever ongoing on Academy and the traffic patterns shift and change pretty frequently. They've especially been doing that around where I live, which is closer to the southern side of town. So things that are different or unusual are going to pique our interest. Also things that are contradictory. This is why we pay attention to beautiful sunsets. If we see a beautiful sunset or a sky color that's outside of the ordinary, it might be contradictory to what we understand the sky to be like, and we're going to pay attention to that. It's why special things oftentimes pique our interest. Things that are repetitive too, we can pay attention to. Sometimes we drown them out. We get that a kind of sensory exhaustion from it. 
we ignore those type of things. But I'll give you an example of we paying attention to something that's repetitive. If you have a kid, let's say, and they're in the back seat and they're asking the same question, are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? After a while, we're going to pay attention to that repetition. We might not be pleasant in terms of paying attention to that repetition, but it will get our attention. This is the same theory that goes behind repetition in public speaking that we've spoken to in the past. And then also we're going to pay attention to things that are personally motivating or important. I know a lot of people talk about this in terms of jobs and positions. They might pay attention to something that they might be paid more to do. Or if you work in sales, you might pay a little more attention to a particular sales lead that has maybe a greater pot of gold at the end of the rainbow, let's say, than a sales lead that might only lead to a smaller sale. So those things are personally motivating because of pay. But there's also things that are personally motivating to us because of our relationships. So if we're in a workplace and we have a relationship, a friendship, let's say, with someone within that workplace, we're more likely to pay attention to what it is they're telling us about a project or something going on than we would someone that we don't really know outside of work because that friendship to us, that's personally motivating or personally important to us. So lots of different examples. This is how we ultimately choose to pay attention to things. Now, there are certain people out there that pay attention to a lot of things that might be meaningless or might not fit any of these descriptions that I've given you. There might be some people that rarely pay attention, in fact, to anything, much less those things that I've listed here. So there are outliers, and that's always important to note when we're talking about the communication process, especially when it comes to attention. Now, when we talk about organizing and interpreting, which are the other facets of kind of our perception, organizing is basically just bringing something in, making sense of it, and defining an incoming stimuli. So I mentioned if a transformer bursts in your neighborhood, the first time it happens, it might be alarming to you. You might think that maybe a firework went off or there was some sort of explosion. But if the same transformer goes off year after year, you're going to get used to it. You're going to organize it in that place in your brain that tells you, well, hey, that sounds like a transformer blowing. That's probably all it is. You're defining that incoming stimuli. It's the same thing as we learn to pay attention to different people, or if you have that friend that's kind of perpetually negative, we tend to organize that and say like, oh, okay, well, this friend is perpetually negative, so maybe this one thing they're talking about isn't all that bad after all. So we're organizing that. And then that leads us to interpretation, which is the act of assigning meaning to a stimulus in order to evaluate and understand its worth. So there again, if we have that constantly negative friend and they're talking about how terrible their meal was at a local restaurant one day, we're going to look at that. We're going to organize it in our head and say like, well, that input is coming from a person that's traditionally negative. And then we're going to interpret it and say, well, maybe that restaurant isn't so bad after all, or maybe it's worth asking another friend that's not so negative what they think about this new restaurant. So there again, we're kind of relying on our previous experience with this person, with maybe what it is that they're talking about, and we apply that in our understanding and our overall perception of something. So really there's five points to interpreting. We use our personal experience, we use our relational involvement, 
which, as I mentioned, is any prior relationship that you've had with the person that you're getting the stimulus from. We use our expectations. Expectations have to do with our expectation maybe about a particular communication. We've talked about expectations before where expectations within a workplace might not be the same as expectations outside the workplace for communication experiences, but also our expectations surrounding just everyday life. For example, if we see a car driving on the wrong side of the road, that violates our expectations because we expect cars to drive on the correct side of the road. And then number four is assumptions. Uh, we organize things according to our assumptions. I'll talk about those on the next slide a little bit more. And then the fifth thing is relational satisfaction. So we compare and contrast all incoming stimulus to our overall relational not only involvement, but our satisfaction and the satisfaction that we expect out of a given relationship. So if a close friend tells us something and we get a lot of satisfaction out of that relationship with the close friend, we're more likely to believe it or at least believe part of what it is that they're telling us because of the satisfaction of that relationship. So let's talk about assumptions and expectations. You know, there are a lot of folk sayings out there guarding against assumptions. Well, when you make assumptions, et cetera, et cetera. But here's the reality of it is in the organizational context in particular, and honestly, I would argue in our day-to-day -day lived experiences, assumptions are necessary. I just talked about a car driving on the wrong side of the road. If we live our everyday lives driving and we constantly don't assume that the cars are going to be driving on the right side of the road, we would be living our lives in fear. It would be difficult for us to drive. We would probably never drive. So we have to make certain assumptions. We have to make assumptions that people will follow certain rules, in this case, the rules of the road. And within an organization, we have to make assumptions that people are going to follow the general MO of things, the general standard operating procedures, if you will. When those are not followed, we get a violation of our expectations, but it's necessary for us to make these assumptions in an organizational context. And sets of these assumptions are often called conventions. Conventions are customary forms and figurations that those in a group or organization have come to expect. Now, some of these conventions might play into language. Like we talked about last week with Starbucks. Starbucks has functional language and they have expressive language. That's a form of their internal conventions. But conventions go so far beyond that. For example, conventions on how to treat a customer, conventions on how to speak with coworkers, conventions on how to make drinks if you're at a Starbucks. There are conventions within an organization that we assume will be followed. We have to assume that these conventions are being followed in order to be able to do our work properly. Now, are there circumstances in which assumptions are a bad thing in organizational communication? Absolutely. You don't want to, for example, just assume someone is supposed to be doing something and then get to the end of the project without having checked in with them and they haven't done a single thing because they didn't know they were supposed to or there was a breakdown in communication. So not all assumptions are good and not all assumptions are necessary, but many of them are. In a larger organizational context, for example, we assume that the CFO, the chief financial officer, is going to be overseeing the finances. And so if I'm the chief marketing officer, I don't have to assume that on a day in, day out basis. I don't have to send an email to the CFO saying like, hey, you got the finances on lockdown? Everything good? No, we have to assume that they're doing their job just like 
others assume that we are doing our jobs. But it is good to have routine check-ins. We'll talk about things like silos later on in the semester. So not always are assumptions good, but by and large, assumptions and conventions are necessary for us to carry out our work on a regular and routine basis. We also talked last week about jargon. Conventions play into jargon quite a bit. Is there a misunderstanding of an acronym? Is there an understanding of a particular acronym that would make it more convenient in order to communicate with others? So that plays into conventions and the role of conventions within a workplace as well. We're going to completely shift gears here. I have no logical seg to this, but I do want to touch briefly on something that's in chapter three called fairness principles of organizational communication. And these fairness principles, there's three of them. Reciprocity. Reciprocity is not only a fairness principle, but it's something to keep in mind in any communication context. More importantly, interpersonal communication. Reciprocity is a relationship of mutual exchange and interdependence. Basically, if I give you something, you're likely to maybe feel pressure, maybe feel a desire, maybe feel a want to give me something in return. That's not necessarily just in terms of like maybe gifts or a material thing, but it can also be in terms of listening or talking or adding to a conversation. There's that sense of reciprocity there. If I do something for you or maybe against you, then there's that innate human desire to kind of counteract that a little bit, to balance it out. If you have an interpersonal relationship where one person is always giving and giving and giving of themselves, that's going to become very tiring. And over time, that relationship is going to generally break down. So reciprocity is important as a fairness principle within organizational communication, just to know that there should be that natural give and take. Mutuality is searching for common ground and understanding with a group or audience. This is something that we do in our everyday lives within interpersonal communication. I think it's something that's important in an organizational context as well. If you get to know, for example, a new coworker, a new group member, you search for what you have in common. And I'm sure many people in the class last week as everyone was kind of introducing themselves, they were kind of doing this in their own head. Okay, hey, this person is in the welding program as well. We have that in common. Or, hey, this person is from this particular area of the country. We have that in common. So you're always searching for what you have in common, that common ground. And if you do that on a regular basis in an organizational context, the old saying goes, we always find out that we have more in common than we have uh, not in common over time. And then non-judgmentalism. This is a willingness to understand and examine diverse ideas and viewpoints. Now, not always do these ideas and viewpoints have to be the correct ones. There is, however, more than one way to break apart a chicken or skin a cat or whatever saying you want to use there, there's more than one way to accomplish a particular task. And so non-judgmentalism is basically saying, hey, let's do our best to examine these other ideas, maybe these counterpoints to what we're saying. We might not have to agree with them wholeheartedly, but it's important to understand where they're coming from. And there could be facets of a competing idea in the marketplace that might be beneficial for you to pick up upon. Studies have shown time and again, when we bring non-judgmentalism to the table as organizations, organizations tend to work more efficiently and they tend to find better solutions to problems. Where we get judgmentalism, which is just dismissing other ideas out of hand, 
That leads oftentimes to groupthink or hive mind, which can lead to inefficient solutions or extensions of problems. So again, the fairness principles that the book discusses, reciprocity, mutuality, and non-judgmentalism. I think it's important to look at all three of those as we go throughout the course of the semester. To wrap things up, just a quick reminder, if you're accessing it before January 30th, it being this supplemental lecture, there is a quiz in class on January 30th. Before the quiz, we'll talk briefly about the rest of chapter three, which is self-understanding and perception. There's no out-of-class assignments due this week, the week that ends February 4th, so no out-of-class assignments due February 4th. It's a great opportunity after you take the quiz to maybe make up work. If you haven't gotten to a discussion board post or a topic check, great opportunity to do that. And then next week, we're going to be discussing chapter four. We'll have topic check number three and reflection essay number one due February 11th. We'll talk about both of those things in class when we meet next week, so next class period. All right, appreciate you joining me for this supplemental lecture. As always, if you have any questions, feel free to reach out to me via email. That's trent.kling at pikespeak.edu. And I hope you all have a great rest of your week. <music>